Amen. Thank you to Dr. Matthew Perry, all the way from Colorado, visiting his mom and dad today and playing for us. Why don't you stand to your feet as we begin our worship time this morning and begin with Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. 
Praise him from the skies. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all the armies of heaven. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you twinkling stars. Praise him, skies above. Praise him, vapors high above the clouds. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. Praise the Lord from the earth, you creatures of the ocean depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all livestock, small scurrying animals and birds, kings of the earth and all people, rulers and judges of the earth, young men and young women, old men and children. Let them all praise the name of the Lord, for his name is very great. His glory towers over the earth and heaven. He has made his people strong, honoring his faithful ones, the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord. Sing with me. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw Praise the Lord. 
church family. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning to talk to you about the amazing opportunity we have as your mission team headed to Paris in 36 days. Ah, 36 days. I can't believe it. We're very excited to be partnering with Jason and Cassie Harris and their team of about 40 in Paris. So I'd like to take a minute and just tell you a little bit about what we're entering into. Because of course we all know Paris is the fashion capital of the world and it is the city of lights and the home of the Eiffel Tower and that's all very exciting. But what's important for us to know as a church family is that Paris is a city of about 12 million. Robbie describes it as a safer and cleaner New York City. Very diversified in language and in nationalities represented there, um, but it is also very hard soil. Less than 1% of that 12 million plus people are evangelical. And of that, less than half of a percent are actually healthy evangelicals. There are approximately 200 plus Catholic churches, beautiful structures in the city, but very few, if any, actual evangelical churches. And so we're entering into a place that is four generations removed from an evangelical presence, and that's some very hard soil. Um, some may not have even known the name of Jesus or God. And so while we're excited to be doing this, it's also a little daunting to think about this. So Paris is very urban, and there will be lots of walking, about 10 miles plus per day. We'll also be taking public transportation. So I share all this to ask you, would you please partner with us in prayer? You have been so generous to allow us to do this. This team of eight is excited and headed into this opportunity to bring the gospel down to the ground, but we also need a lot of prayer. I ask that you would pray for us emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and um, for our families that we're leaving behind. Please pray for them. Obviously pray for our safety as we travel, but most importantly, pray for the souls of the Parisians that we're gonna encounter. Pray that even now, God is stirring the soil of their heart, that they might be um, open to engaging us, open to um, hearing what we have to say, open to hearing about Jesus and eternal life and just the joy that they can have even here. I, I just ask you to partner with us in praying for our readiness and our endurance to walk this out. If you haven't received one of these cards, they're here and it shows you our, our beautiful faces, but it also has specific prayer requests on the back. We're also working on a prayer journal that we hope to be able to distribute to any who would be interested. Prayer is our most powerful weapon. So we ask that you would prayerfully um, join us in praying as we go and be Lord's hands and feet, salt and light into a dark world. Thank you so much. Pray for Jason and Cassie and his team. Um, there's about 40 of them, including 10 children, ages 2 to 13. I'm excited that the children's department here is even partnering with us in ways that we can minister to even them. They are former missionaries to China 
that have now been pulled by the IMB and are serving in Paris, which ironically is home to about 600,000 Chinese individuals. So God's no, God knows what he's doing. I'm excited at what God is preparing for us to encounter. I'll be looking forward to bringing that news back to you and sharing that with you in the future, or at least one of our team members will be. I thank you. I thank you for prayerfully supporting us, for financially supporting us, for the opportunity to do this. Thank you for going with us. Merci beaucoup. Je t'aime. Au revoir. Well, good morning. It's exciting to see our groups going off on mission trip right now. We have 18 in Anchorage, Alaska. So in just a moment when we pray, let's remember them also uh, in prayer together. Uh, and then we have another team leaving in just a few weeks, a couple weeks, to uh, Soldatna, Alaska, to work at Solid Rock Bible Camp. And so groups leaving all throughout the summer. That's exciting to see our folks doing that and getting bitten by the mission bug. I love that. So anyway, we're glad to see that. But welcome today. If you're a guest of ours, please take one of the care cards. They're located there in the pew rack just in front of you. Uh, fill that in. We'd like to have a record of you being here. And on the back of those care cards is a place for anyone to fill in a prayer request. If you have a need, we want to know about that as a staff and be praying for you. So also take a moment to do that. As you leave today, uh, there are giving boxes on either side of the double doors you leave. There are white boxes. You can drop those in there. And our, our great uh, ladies, administrative assistants, will make sure that gets to the right people. And we'll be praying for you uh, through that. So anyway, thank you for being here today. We're glad that you're with us. Just a couple of reminders of what's going on this week. Friendly Neighbors uh, is having a meeting this Tuesday at Dorton Park at 11.30. And they ask, to, ask you to bring a chair and a dish to share. That's kind of a tongue twister. Anyway, and a dish to share. That's always a great time and great food. So uh, come be a part of that. It's our senior adult group. Again, Friendly Neighbors at Dorton Park this Tuesday at 11.30. And then don't forget to register for Vacation Bible School June 26th through the 29th. You can go online at pbcweb.org, or you can do that in the lobby. Uh, also, snack suppers are offered each night at $16 per person for those four evenings. Uh, you can also do that online or in the lobby. Hopefully, you got an email this week from our pastor from his desk uh, about a particular matter. Our deacons and staff met with Matt Tucker last Thursday and grilled him, I mean questioned him, for two hours. Uh, as a candidate for ordination into pastoral ministry, uh, Matt did a fantastic job, and both groups unanimously unanimously voted to present him to you. And so next Sunday, June 18th, the church will be voting uh, on this important matter. In the event of an affirmative vote, we will have an ordination service on Sunday, July the 2nd, during the 5 o'clock service time. Uh, we're excited for Matt and Darian. Uh, they have been called to Locust Grove Baptist Church in Weberville, North Carolina. Uh, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. We hate to see them leave us. They have been such a great part of what's going on here with staff. Uh, Matt's been serving as our intern since January, and uh, he has done a fantastic job working with Epic and the youth and filling in for the children's ministry. We hate to see them go, but folks, we know it's a great thing because they're going to be doing kingdom work. Amen. And so to see, that's one of the things uh, that, that we as the staff, I know Pastor Scott, his heart is to, to see people uh, raised up and, and, and leave us to go and work and do kingdom work. So this is a huge answer to our prayer. And so I want to ask you to be praying for them also uh, as they go and, and do those things there. This can be a whole new venture for them. 
uh, with two little boys and a little girl on the way uh, in July. That's going to be an exciting adventure for them, so be remembering them. So to that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you would take just a moment to silence your heart before the Lord this morning, and then in just a moment, I'll pray uh, for us out loud. Let's pray together. God, we first of all thank you for all that you do each and every day to bless each one of us, God. To be able to get out of bed this morning and to be able to come to a facility like this one to worship you and to praise you, God, is, is just a huge blessing. Sometimes we forget to even look at the little things that you give us each day. And God, please don't let us take those for granted, but to have our hearts overflow to uh, praise and worship you, God, and to thank you for all you do to, to take care of us. God, we do pray for the team that is in Anchorage right now, working at First Baptist there, God, that you give them safety, that you would help them to be efficient, get a lot done in the facility, and help that church prepare for vacation Bible school. And through that, God, many children would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would hear the gospel, maybe even some teenagers and adults, that they would have opportunities even this week to share the gospel with some of those people. God, for this Paris team, this eight that is preparing to go really to a place that is cold to the gospel, God, we pray you'd go before them. Be with this group that's already there, this 40, uh, in this church plant, God, that you would use them. Let these eight go over and encourage them that they would see incredible things happen, that they would be able to go and make a difference through, through prayer and just talking to people around that area, God. Just be with them in a special way. And for our other team that's going to be going up to Soldatna, God, for all the different things that we're doing up there, God, that you would use our efforts to bring you glory. God, we pray for this service today. We know that prayers have already gone up just a moment ago. There, are, I'm sure there are needs, whether they're physical needs, maybe there are some emotional things going on, some difficulties with family members or coworkers or neighbors or friends, God. You know all those situations, and we ask you to give us wisdom to know how to deal with each of those situations as they arise, God. We do pray for our pastor today. God, he has a message that you've given to him. He's prayed and studied uh, over that message, over that text, and we pray, God, that you'd use his words to, to challenge our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit today. Just be with us in this place, and God, that we would uh, allow this service to be something that is pleasing to you, God. This service is not about us. It's about you, God. And help us to remember that as we worship. Thank you again for all you do for us and all of God's people said.
the tomb of Buddha. I looked inside and I saw his bones. I traveled on to see Muhammad still wrapped up in his grave clothes. Then I journeyed to the garden Where old Joseph left him there The precious lamb, God's own begotten Was no longer in that if you knew him like I know him, you would know that he's alive. If you felt him like I feel him, resurrection deep inside. Deep inside 
God's people said? Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, Quartet. And uh, it's also good to have Matthew Perry with us today. I, I guess he's okay on that piano. Would you say that? Uh, Matt, I mean, I think of what I can play. I can play chopsticks. So, uh, but anyway, it's good to have uh, Matt, and I'm sure his mom and dad are tickled to have him in town uh, for a short uh, trip that he and his wife and family have taken. Uh, I want you to open your copy of the scripture to Mark chapter 12 this morning as we continue in our series going through uh, Mark's gospel. And this morning we are looking at the subject matter, more traps set for Jesus. We're in that section in Mark where Christ is having some confrontations with religious leaders. And the religious leaders are questioning Jesus about things. They're trying to trap him because they're looking for a reason to bring accusations against him. And so they keep presenting to him trick questions to try to get him to stumble and provide a basis that they can accuse him of various things. This morning, we're going to look at the last two questions that they ask in this series of trick questions, okay? And so I've simply entitled, More Traps Set for Jesus. So find Mark chapter 12, and we'll begin at verse 18, and we'll read down through verse 34. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Mark 12, 18 to 34. It says, And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again... Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, and we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds to understand the the rich things that you have given to us herein. Lord, that our understanding would result in greater testimony and greater godliness before a watching world. Father, we know that there are many questions that people want to ask us today. Help us to know the scriptures. Help us to depend upon you. Lord, may we point people to Jesus. God, again, we thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, we thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection because without that, we have no redemption. We have no justification. We have no eternal life. But we thank you also for how we see that he lived his life. Tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. And he set that example for us. Lord, again, just open our minds to learn this morning, to apply. Lord, to be strengthened in our own faith. That we might be a better witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, folks, the Bible has wonderful things to say about heaven. And aren't you glad that it does? I think of the Apostle John, for instance. John, in Revelation 21, says, Behold, the dwelling place of uh, God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself uh, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Folks, it is no wonder that the hymn says, When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be when we all see Jesus will sing and shout the victory. Just think about what that hymn is saying when we all get to heaven. We can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity is a resurrection faith. Folks, death and the grave are not the end. 
Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'm glad ours is a resurrection faith. Now with that said, we know that people often wonder what heaven will be like. Are there going to be pets in heaven? Is my dog going to make it? Will he be there? People ask questions like this. What's travel going to be like? Will we dart from one universe to another? A lot of unanswered questions. Well, in our first set of verses today, the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus. Just like in the previous passage, the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap him. And what we see in this passage is Jesus is, is teaching about heaven and pointing out for us that heaven is going to be far greater than our current earthly experiences and then in the next passage he goes on to remind us what our focus is to be like now and while we wait to get to heaven I want you to notice with me first of all this morning a tricky question about marriage read again there in verse 18 Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection they asked him a question saying teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother and he goes on to tell about seven brothers that have her as wife whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection now one writer said that today for a preacher if you want to draw a crowd you can either preach on sex or you can preach on the end times. He said if you really want to draw a crowd you can preach on sex in the end times. <laughs> well I want you to notice the question. Who it's from? It comes from the Sadducees. They were a small sect of priestly families. They dominated the Sanhedrin. They were wealthy, wealthy aristocrats with significant political and temple influences. They were sympathetic to Hellenism. What's Hellenism? When Alexander the Great, back during the uh, time between the Testaments, when Alexander the Great was trying to make all of the known world at that time that he conquered Greek. It's known as the Hellenization uh, of, of, of the world. And, and these Sanhedrin were very sympathetic to that. They were sympathetic to Rome. They were sympathetic to the uh, Herods. They only considered the first five books of the Bible to be authoritative. The first five books of the Bible, of course, being referred to as the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection. 
You heard that right. They did not believe in the resurrection. They were not looking for a Messiah from David's line. And they did not believe in the immortality of the soul. Here they tried to trap Jesus in a reductio ad absurdum. That, that's, that's a Latin phrase for an argument that ventures over into the absurd. The ridiculous. And they're trying to trap Jesus with a very ridiculous thing here. Now it could be that the apocryphal book of Tobit, which they would have known, is providing the inspiration for this question. Because you see in the apocryphal book of Tobit, there's a woman who marries seven different brothers. And each one of those brothers is strangled to death on their wedding night. So maybe that's the inspiration to this question here. But of course, what they're addressing overall is leveret marriage. I want you to write down Deuteronomy 25.5. Deuteronomy 25.5 and go back and read that chapter from that point following to understand what leveret marriage was. God gave them a regulation in Israel that if a man married a woman and he died... And there were no children resulting from that marriage. And that man had a brother. The brother was to take the widow as his wife. And the firstborn son would be considered the son of the deceased. So that the name of the deceased would not be cut off from the land. In the Old Testament, in several places, we see cases of leveret marriage. In the book of Ruth, with Boaz and Ruth, we see a, a very a good case of leveret marriage, the way it was intended to be. In Genesis 38, we see the case of leveret marriage gone bad. And probably one of the most R-rated passages in all the Old Testament, you'll remember... That Judah has a son who God takes because he's wicked. And then another, uh, uh, the, the deceased has a brother who takes this wife, leveret marriage. And, and uh, he likewise is taken by the Lord because he's wicked. And Judah says to Tamar, wait till my third son, my youngest son is old enough and I'll give him to you as a husband. And of course, he gets old enough and Judah has not given him yet to the widow. And so Tamar pulls a trick on Judah. Again, a very risque story in the Old Testament. She dresses up as a prostitute and she sits at the city gate of a town that Judah is going up to, to visit. Judah's wife has died. He goes into her thinking she's a prostitute because she's got a head covering on. She conceives and, and then when Judah learns that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, they say, Judah, what should we do with her? He says, bring her out that we stone her to death. Then we can take her life. And remember, she asked for a pledge. She said, wait a minute, I've got some items of the man who is the father of my child. And she produces items, and it's Judah's items. Uh-oh, we caught. Again, a case of leveret marriage gone bad. 
But it was a, a common thing in the Old Testament. Something God had even commanded them to do so that the name of the dead would not be cut off. And I want you to notice their question in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now remember, they didn't even believe in the resurrection to begin with. You get the feeling that they're sort of poking fun at the thought of resurrection. And they're trying to present a conundrum for Jesus. Now on the surface, it might seem to the average listener that Jesus is finally trapped. I mean, they've got him. They've got him. They've got him trapped. But I want you to see, secondly, a sovereign answer about marriage and the resurrection, beginning there in verse 24 and going down through verse 27. Jesus begins by pointing out that they don't understand either about marriage or the resurrection. Folks, these guys are supposed to be the authority in Israel, and yet they are blind to the things of God. It is a commentary on what God said to his people through uh, Jeremiah the prophet when he said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It's pretty sad when shepherds are ignorant of the word of God. And these guys are ignorant of God's word. And so first Jesus points out that there is no marriage in heaven like on earth. Now, can one extrapolate from that to say, does this mean that we won't have bodies? That we won't have physical bodies? Is that what it means? No, not at all. I told you two weeks ago that in the church, we're in danger on this issue of being too Greek. Of following Plato. Or even worse, the Gnostics. Because under Platonism, what did they dream of? They dreamed of when you could lay this body aside and your soul and your spirit would be free. It would be released from this body. That's what they dreamed of. And in Gnosticism, they also discounted the body. They said, just so long as you give attention to your spirit and your soul, you can really do anything you want to with your body. Immorality? You want to do immorality? Hey, no problem. Go for it. Because the body doesn't matter. Just make sure you're still giving attention to your soul and your spirit. But neither Platonism nor Gnosticism is Bible truth. Your body matters. It matters now what you do with it. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians in a city where prostitution was big. Are you going to join your body to a prostitute in a sexual act? If you're going to do that then what you're actually doing is you're joining Jesus Christ to that prostitute. Because your body is his temple. It matters what you do with your bodies now. God created you body, soul, and spirit. And one of these days as you read the end of the biblical narrative, what's God going to do? God's going to give you a glorified body. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have a real body in a real place. I've got a buddy, in fact, he preached here back in March for my 25th anniversary, Dr. Kurt Horn, Greek and New Testament professor. 
He said, Scott, I absolutely refuse to sing that church that's so popular, that the, the hymn that's so popular in the church when we all fly away. You know that hymn, when we fly away? He says it's platonic, it's Greek, it's not Bible. Christians are like Greeks when they sing that, even though, of course, that's not what they're doing in their hearts and minds, obviously. But it's like, when I die, I'm going to lay this body aside. I'm going to be free of it, and I'm going to fly away. He said, people don't realize what they're doing. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he wished he could bypass the intermediate state. He wishes that... That he could, he, he could just be swallowed up and, and get the glorified body, the final state. Uh, because he says the intermediate state, he compares it to being naked when we lay the body in the grave and the soul and spirit goes to be with the Lord. But then Paul corrects himself because he wants to clarify to people that he's not saying that the intermediate state when we're a bodiless soul, he's not saying that that's bad because he says that state is still better than what we have now because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But he said, uh, what is it that the Bible actually celebrates? The Bible actually is celebrating the final state when we get the glorified body and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And as Dr. Horn said, that's what the people of God ought to be celebrating about the future. Because we're going to have a glorified body. And what's it going to be like? It's going to be like the resurrected body of Jesus. The disciples recognized him in the upper room. He invited them to touch him, to, to feel his scars. He, he ate with them. And so apparently we're going to look like what we look like on earth. We're going to be able to eat. You know, the Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so apparently we're going to know one another. But in heaven, there's not going to be marriage. On earth, marriage provides opportunity for procreation and companionship. We won't be making babies in, in heaven and as far as companionships, our relationships are going to be fuller and richer than anything we've experienced on earth. There's not going to be need of marriage. And so the primary application here is to, to saying that we'll be like the angels means that evidently we'll be celibate. Now I realize in some of your minds you might be thinking about Genesis 6 and the book of Jude. One of the primary ways of interpreting Genesis 6 about the sons of God. A phrase that's used in the Old Testament about angels. And how the sons of God were desiring the daughters of men and going into them and having offspring with them. It's to talk about angels who somehow or another in a way we're not, we're not told there in the text have intimate relationships with earthly women. Jude in the New Testament picks up on that as well. And I do think that's the right interpretation of Genesis 6. I don't take sons of God there as being the descendants of Seth or being uh, righteous kings. I, I think he's talking about angels in some kind of strange union with women that we don't understand. But the point is, 
what Genesis 6 is talking about and what Jude picks up on is these are angels who have left their proper abode. With angels who have stayed in their lane, there is no marrying. Angels don't marry. Angels don't have relationships with people. And we're going to be like the angels in heaven. But, but again, back to our main points today. I'd say we're going to be like the angels of heaven in that regard. Not in other regards, but in that regard. But the main point here, Jesus is talking about how death dissolves the marriage bond. There is no marriage in heaven. And that's why when somebody today loses a spouse in death, they can remarry without having the stigma attached to them of being an adulterer. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. But there's an even bigger point to be made here. Read with me verses 26 and 27. He says, As far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now again, remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They said when you die, you die. They thought they were the purest of the pure when it came to the Jewish leaders because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus points out to these guys, you don't even know your Pentateuch very well. You don't even know the first five books of the Bible very well. You only accept those five books and no others. You don't even know those five books. Because he calls up the book of Exodus against them as a witness. Folks, you don't have to have the rest of the Bible to argue in favor of the resurrection. Now, I'm glad we do have the rest of the Bible. Amen? I'm glad we have chapters in the Bible on the resurrection like 1 Corinthians 15. But do you realize you encounter the resurrection in the Pentateuch? Jesus gives the example of Exodus chapter 3. What happened in Exodus chapter 3 that's significant? God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And how did God identify himself? Don't miss this. Did God say, I was the God, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is that what God said to Moses? No. What did he say? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now to speak of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the present tense versus in the past tense must mean that they are still alive. Exactly. That's the point. But how can they be alive if they died and were buried? Because they are alive with the Lord. When Jesus says in verse 27 that you're greatly mistaken, that translates a word that our word planet comes from. Planets go through space in orbit. But here, like a planet that has left its orbit, it's gone astray, it's strayed, it's drifted off course, 
Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, that's what you guys have done. You've drifted. You've drifted off course. You're like a planet that has left its orbit and strayed. But again, what's the application in all this? Even though there's not marriage in heaven, your body matters because you're going to have a glorified body. God created you with a body. And by the way, the Bible even teaches by way of stewardship that what we do now in our bodies, our faithfulness, our stewardship, how we serve the Lord and how we're using our gifts, that's even going to impact responsibilities that the Lord gives to us in heaven. It's important in our bodies now. To be faithful, to be responsible. Now, you would think the religious leaders would have left well enough alone here. They, they've presented a couple of gotcha questions already. And Jesus has turned both of these questions back on them. Left them speechless. What would smart people do? Smart people would be quiet, right? I mean, don't ask anything else. Just accept defeat. But no, they've got another gotcha question. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the most important of all? Now, folks, you need to understand, there were countless debates over this one, too. When you look at the Mosaic Law, you begin with the Ten Commandments, but the laws of God didn't stop there. There were 613 commandments in all that build off of the original ten. David, in Psalm 15, took 613 and narrowed them down to 11. Isaiah took those 11, and in Isaiah 33, narrowed them down to 6. Micah took those 6, narrowed them down to 3. Habakkuk took 3 and said, here it is. You want to know what's important? The just shall live by faith. Endless debates about what's really important in the commandments. Everybody wanted to know this. And so here's a lawyer that steps forward to ask this. And you know, I can see maybe his question is not intended to be quite as big of a trap. Maybe he's just impressed with how Jesus has answered the tricky question so far. And he just wants to know one he's curious about. Maybe his motive isn't as bad as the previous guy's. But what we see here in Jesus' answer is that in our faith, we've got to have the right focus. I want you to see thirdly with me this morning, our devotion is to have the proper object. In verse 29, Jesus answered and said, The most important question is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, you and I are to love God supremely. And where does that begin? That begins with having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. you got to begin there. And what Jesus is doing here is quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he's adding Leviticus to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two commandments that the rest of the law hinges on. But he begins here with pointing out, Jesus is saying, pointing out that the greatest commandment is you and I have the proper love and devotion to God that we ought to have. Oswald Chambers, many of you have his devotional. He said, the surest sign that God has done a work of grace in my heart is that I love Jesus Christ best. Not weakly and faintly, not just merely intellectually, but passionately, personally, and devotedly overwhelming every other love of my life. You hear what Oswald Chambers is saying when he said the surest sign that God has done a work of grace in my heart? He's saying that you, you want to know one of the greatest assurances you have of your salvation? One of the greatest assurances you have of your salvation is you love God and you want to grow in that love. You want to love Him more and more and more. That's evidence that He's done a work of grace in your heart. Now the word for love used here is agape love. That was the highest and holiest word in the Greek language for love. There's phileo love, friendship love. Hey, that, that's good. But not as good as agape love. A love that you're even willing to set aside your own desires, your own agenda, and put the other one first. The type of love the Bible says husbands are to have for their wife. Agape love. And Jesus is saying, you want to know the greatest commandment is you have that kind of love for God. I think of people in the Old Testament like Daniel, who loved God with all of his heart. So many characters in the Bible who loved God this way. And because they loved God this way, they were willing to do whatever he told them to do. They were willing to, to do things at great cost to themselves. Agape love. I was reading a few years back about the true story of a young woman in Richmond, Virginia. She was engaged to be married and she and her fiancé went to Grove Avenue Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. I've actually uh, been to a service at that church. While driving around town and taking care of a lot of the errands related to the upcoming wedding, she was killed in a car accident. When the police officers got there to the scene, uh, one of the few contacts they found was the fiancé's number. And so they had to call him and tell him. And officers continued to search through things in the car to find out more about this lady, her address, where she lived. And, all. and, and when the fiancé got to the scene of the accident, one of the officers who, who didn't know Christ, but obviously he was under conviction. He said to this young man, I can tell your fiancé is somebody 
who really knew God. She loved God. She knew the Lord just by looking through stuff in her car. And the officer asked that young man, could you tell me more about her life? And that young grieving fiancé at the scene of the accident sits down on the curb and he leads that young officer to faith in Christ. True story. That woman loved God, and it was so evident to that officer as he was looking through her stuff. Jesus says that's how you and I are to love God. And and that word love there also highlights it's a relationship. It's not just checking things off the list as part of religion. We're to have a love relationship with God made possible for us because Jesus came and reconciled us to the Heavenly Father. He died for your sins and my sins on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father opening the way for us that we can go through Him into the presence of God and we can know God. We can love Him. We can worship Him. We can have communion with Him. Jesus has made that possible. How do we know when we love God that way? Jesus said it would be demonstrated through lives of obedience. He said so in the Gospel of John. That those who love me will obey me. Somebody who says they love God, but then they just go on to live any old way they want to live and do whatever they want to do. They don't understand what a real love relationship with God is all about. Jesus even said in Matthew 7 about those who confess the Lord with their lips. They say they know Him and yet they go on and do whatever they want to do in life. That they don't really know Him. If we truly love God, we're not going to want to squander our lives away. We're not going to want to give our lives to things that are going to break God's heart. We're going to want to develop that relationship with Him. Demonstrate that we really love Him through lives of obedience. We're not to be like what one writer said with biting uh, sarcasm. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love somebody of a different race or to pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in, the, in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You know, tragically, that's how a lot of people are. Just give me enough of God to kind of make me comfortable. Soothe my conscience. Jesus said, no, you're to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Look at those one at a time. Loving God with all your heart. 
We could say this is our emotions, and emotions aren't bad. Some people want to uh, come into church and just say, hey, we, we just need to be stoic all the time. Well, that's fine if that's how you worship. Other people say, amen, or they cry, or they shout hallelujah. Their emotions are touched. That's okay, too. Folks, we're to love God with our emotions. We're not to have a cold, dead orthodoxy. Our hearts are to be touched. Jesus went on to say here, you're to love God with all your soul, the spiritual side of life. You and I are to feed our spirit. We're not just flesh and and bone and blood. The world approaches life as, as though we're just flesh and bone. And when we die, we die. But that's not the biblical image of life at all. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When God created Adam, yes, he created him with the body, but he breathed into him a living soul. And your soul and my soul is going to live somewhere for all of eternity. Are you loving God with your soul? Love God with your mind, Jesus says. This is the intellect. How are you doing at growing in your knowledge of God and in spiritual things? Folks, when I read some of the writings of earlier Christians, it absolutely blows my mind what deep thinkers they were on spiritual matters. You know, we've got so many visual things today. All of our, all of our computers and telephones and videos and this and that. And we, we've ceased really being a people who read. And we deprive ourselves of so much great Christian stuff that's out there to to read, to to feed our minds. We're missing out on a lot of that. I want to say to you this morning, the more you learn of doctrine, the more you're going to appreciate and love God. Those who tend to only the emotional side of things and downplay the importance of loving God with the mind so oftentimes end up with an uninformed sentimentalism. Some people want to come to church and and just have a children's sermon. Well, that's okay for children, but we need to move on and grow. The writer of Hebrews chastised the people to whom he was writing. He said, by this time, I should be able to move on with you and teach you richer, fuller, deeper things. But I'm still having to talk to you about the basics again. You're needing to be taught, and instead, you ought to be ready to be teachers yourselves. But because they had not grown in their love of God with their mind, they were were about to turn away from the church because of all of the persecution they were facing. Because they hadn't challenged themselves to think about the rich things of the faith and to count the cost and what being a disciple of Jesus means. And the writer of Hebrews said, it's time for you to move on. Grow up intellectually in your faith with Jesus so you'll be fully equipped to be able to battle against all this stuff that the culture is throwing at us today. Folks, the culture today, think of everything this culture in 2023 is flinging at us. Are you equipped in your mind 
to be able to give a reason, a defense for the faith that you have. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that we're to be ready to give a defense for our hope in Christ. But if we're going to do that in this age, we've got to prepare our mind. We've got to love God with our minds. Jesus went on to say, love God with all your strength. Here again, you've got a body. 1 Corinthians 6 says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you taking care of your body? We don't want to be fanatical like a lot of people are today. But I'm here to tell you, you neglect care of your body. And guess what? Things are going to happen to it that's going to compromise even your ability to serve the Lord. You don't take care of your body and you, you develop things that, that get wrong with your body because of neglect of the body. You won't be able to do things like go to Paris, walk 10 miles a day, go to Alaska. Your body won't allow you to do something like that. You need to take care of your body so you'll be ready to serve the Lord. If he called you to do something. Amen? Are you loving God with your body? Are you taking care of your body? Think of all these different areas that Jesus says we're to grow in. Your heart, soul, mind, strength. You know who the perfect example of that was? Jesus. Go home and read the closing verses of Luke chapter 2 that tell us about the childhood of Jesus. And it says that he continued to grow in these areas. He continued to grow in these areas and in favor with God and man. Jesus is the perfect example of what he's talking about right here. One more thing quickly. Fourth point. Our devotion is to have the proper outcome. In verse 31, he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if we're loving God the way we ought to be loving God... If we're loving him properly, guess what? It's going to result in loving people properly too. Why? Because other people were created in the image of God. He cares for them. Do you love people? If you love, if you love God, you need to love people. Now, when Jesus says love, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, it, he's not promoting more self-love. He's just recognizing it's already there. In fact, in most healthy people, we tend to ourselves. We bathe, we eat, we exercise, we sleep when we're tired. We make decisions based on how they'll affect us. We try to protect ourselves. Man generally doesn't have to be taught self-love. Jesus is just saying, love others the way you already love yourself. He's saying, don't just focus on yourself, by the way. Don't just focus on yourself. Don't think that you can love God and just say to the rest of the world and everybody else around you, I don't care about you, I don't care what happens to you. Hey, because I love God. 
My relationship with him is what it's supposed to be. That's all that matters. Jesus said, no, if the vertical is right, guess what? It's going to impact the horizontal too. Amen? How we treat other people. How we love other people. How we treat them. How we act towards them. How we demonstrate Christian love to them. It matters to God. How we serve other people. It matters to God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to notice something in closing. I don't want you to miss. What did the man go on to say to Jesus? He said in verse 32, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he's one. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. Notice Jesus' response. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You know what's so important about that? Let that phrase sink in. He was not far from the kingdom of God, but he wasn't in the kingdom either. You can be one inch from heaven and die and spend eternity in hell. Do you realize that? You can be close, close, but not saved. Could I be talking to somebody like that this morning? You're close to surrendering your life to Christ. You're coming and learning more and more. That's good. But have you taken that step? Repented of your sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Have you been born again, born from above, born of the Spirit? Jesus said to a religious man, Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. You can be religious. You can have perfect attendance in church. You can go on mission trips. You can do all types of stuff and be close but not in. Are you in? That's something to think about, isn't it? It's not just something to think about. It's something to do something about. If you're close but not in. You need to pray that God would break your heart and convict your soul to, and, and draw you to faith in Christ to the point that you'd take that step and come to Him. You say, well, what's everybody going to think of me? It doesn't matter what everybody thinks. But I tell you what everybody's going to think. They're going to think, praise God. He or she finally got it right with God. Nobody's going to feel bad about you. They're going to rejoice with you. Don't be satisfied with being close. Be in. Let me give you some lessons. Lesson number one, life is not over when we are laid in the grave. Life is not over when we are laid in the grave. Secondly, heaven will be a wonderful place of communion with God. Thirdly, 
Heaven will be greater than our finite minds can currently comprehend. We will not be disappointed in heaven. Fourth, until you are with the Lord, you are to live with the proper focus for a Christian, which includes both love for God and love for others. I want to ask you to bow with me a moment. And as you bow with me, every head bowed, every eye closed. Perhaps you need to respond to this passage by saying, God, my love for you is not what it should be. It's been more ritual than relationship. Lord, help me to carry out the greatest commandment. Help me to carry out the greatest commandment. What habits with your mind, your body, your soul, what what habits need to be developed? That with your whole being, what Christ is saying there, with your whole being, every ounce of your being, love God. What do you need to do? What disciplines need to be put in place so you can do that? Maybe there are others who see that you need to reach out to others better. Because if you're going to love God the way you should be, then there are people who need your Christian witness and your Christian service. Maybe there's even somebody coming to your mind right now that you need to reach out to. More important than anything else, maybe someone is saying, Lord, I know I'm close. I've, I've bought a Bible. I'm trying to read it periodically. I'm... I'm trying to come to church. I'm trying to do a few things to learn more about you. God, I know I'm close, but I've never taken that step of surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. God, I pray that that person would call out to you today. That you would save them, convert them. That they would come forward confessing you before men. Lord, we don't want to just be close. I pray that people would make sure they are in. Lord, speak to people through the power of your Spirit. I've done all I can do, and that's speak to the ears of men and women. I ask you to speak to hearts. Have your way and your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.